My name is Ian Hamilton. I'm the newest unpaid member of the, past <laughs> of the pastoral staff at Sovereign Grace. Let us pray together. We bless you, our God and our Father in heaven, for your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. In him you have blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. In him you chose us from before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before you. In your great love, our heavenly Father, you have predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of your will and to the praise of your glorious grace. In your Son, the Son that you have loved from times eternal, you truly have blessed us with every spiritual blessing. We come to you this morning as debtors to mercy alone. We come as those who have given you nothing but who have received everything from you. We come as those, Lord, who have failed and fallen time without number, but who have received grace upon grace from your kind and merciful heart. We ask you, Lord, to hear us this morning as we come with prayers of intercession and petition, as we come to bring our cares and our burdens and our hopes and our fears to you, our God and our Father. We ask you to hear us, Lord, not because of our asking, but because of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you that in him we have this access into your presence. We thank you that in our Lord Jesus Christ, united to him by your eternal purpose, and by his precious sin-atoning blood, we not only have access to you, but acceptance with you, and not only acceptance with you, but the knowledge that we are loved in him with an everlasting love. Hear, Lord, the cries of our hearts. Blessed Holy Spirit, take our inarticulate sighs and groans and present them to the heavenly Father, we ask you, Lord, to answer our prayers above and beyond our asking, for you are a great God and a great King. We pray that you would teach us to come with boldness before you, albeit a boldness clothed in humility. We ask you this morning, Lord, to remember us for good. We pray for those among us who have sinned grievously, in these past days, Lord, may the restoring, renewing grace of our God be their portion. We pray for those of us here, Lord, who are going through dark and difficult times. Often your providences are impenetrable to us. Your ways are past finding out. Your thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And Lord, it's simply because you are God and we are not. Teach us to live by faith and not by sight. Teach us, Lord, to trust you when we cannot fathom you. May we never forget that our heavenly Father will never cause any of his children a needless tear. Bind up the brokenhearted, Lord. Remember the widows and the orphans in their afflictions. Be kind, Lord. To those who are wandering, restore and renew them, we pray. Remember those, Lord, for whom life is ebbing away. May the eternal glories be ever more present to them. May they look forward with increasing delight and joy to that city which is above to that kingdom that cannot be shaken. We pray, Lord, for the life and witness of this congregation that you will prosper it, above all that it will grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, grow in love to you who first loved us. We pray that the ministry of this congregation 
would be godly and holy and humble and powerful and passionate and Christ-exalting. Lord, above all, Christ-exalting. May Jesus Christ be lifted high as your word is proclaimed here Sunday by Sunday and week by week. May the glory of Jesus Christ be what feeds our souls and fuels our endeavors for the sake of your kingdom in this world. Lord, bless this congregation. Provide for all its needs that it may be enabled of you to minister to many. Add to the church, Lord. Add to the church. Help those set apart to lead and direct the life of this church. Give them a pastor's heart. Give them the kindness and compassion of Christ as they care for your sheep. And Lord, we pray for this nation in its turmoils. We live in a fallen world, a dark world, but a world, Lord, over which you rule supremely and serenely. We pray that in your grace and mercy, the gospel will come with renewed power to this land, that your church would be awakened and revived and delivered from worldliness and shallowness and triviality. We pray, Lord, that we would be delivered from worldliness and shallowness and triviality. And we pray for the nations of this world, Lord, in all their darkness. We thank you for ministries like Radius International. Remember, Lord, all who serve you in this work. Be with these young men and women and families preparing here and in Asia to serve you to the ends of the earth. Lord, give them the grace of perseverance. Help them, Lord, through trial and trouble to go on, equip them, Lord, enable them to be so competent in the languages to which they go that they will be wonderfully enabled of you to be ambassadors for Jesus Christ. Lord, have mercy upon the nations. In wrath, remember mercy, Lord, we pray. So we look to you. We confess that apart from you, we can do nothing. And so we say, Lord, with the psalmist, our help is in the name of the Lord who made the heavens and the earth. Meet with us today, Lord. May your word speak into our lives, into our families' lives, into the life of this church. May your word speak, Lord, to convince and to convict, to humble, but then to encourage. Lift up our eyes, Lord, beyond the seen to the unseen. Help us to penetrate, Lord, the veil this morning. Hear us, we pray. We are poor and needy and we do not know the half, Lord. But we come to you, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who is far more ready to bless us than we are to be blessed. Receive us, we pray. Forgive the multitude of our sins. Wash us clean. And we ask it all in the name and for the sake of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, good, good morning, Sovereign Grace. I want to welcome you. If My name is Chad. I am um, one of the pastors here. I want to make a couple of announcements just so you're oriented. If you're a guest here this morning, this is a, a bit different for us as a service. Um, our friends from Banner of Truth are here. Ian Hamilton, one of the trustees who just um, replaced me in doing pastoral prayer. And you could do it every week if you'd like. Um, we're, we're wel you're welcome here. Um, we, we also will, in, in a minute, uh, have um, Mark Johnston, one of the other trustees of the Banner of Truth, speaking. I'm bringing the word to us this morning. With that said, I'm going to go ahead and let uh, Ian Hamilton, whom most of you know now because he's served with us so many times that he's beginning more and more to feel like he should just move here. Joan, we would take you both uh, anytime. If Scotland, 
If you ever get tired of the beauty of Scotland, we have a place that doesn't offer that right here. So <laughs> that said, um, Ian, we, we want Ian to introduce Mark Johnston. Some of you may know of him already because you've, a lot of you have read his commentary on the Gospel of John uh, from the Banner Truth series that we've been using in our grace groups. Um, and so, but I'll let Ian, as his friend, introduce him. Well, it's a special delight for me to welcome my dear brother, Mark Johnson. God's been very kind to me in my Christian life. Uh, He gave me the best of wives, um, but he's also given me particular friends, and Mark is chief amongst those friends. He's been um, a stalwart brother, um, kind, uh, considerate. Um, We speak Sometimes it seems almost every day. We live about six, seven hundred miles apart. Um, Mark has been what Anne of Green Gables would call a kindred spirit. Uh, Mark has ministered in Northern Ireland, in London, uh, in the metro Philadelphia area, and now he is pastor of a Presbyterian church in South Wales. Uh, He's married, he has two children. And he has just become a grandfather for the very first time. And he is thrilled uh, with this new addition to the family. Um, I've benefited greatly, not just from Mark's friendship, but from his ministry, his many encouragements to me. We, We speak weekly about the Word of God, the Gospel of Christ, the theology of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And I know that God will minister through him this morning. So Mark, come and be God's servant to us today. Let me thank my dear brother Ian for his very kind and generous words of introduction. Uh, and let me also thank uh, Chad and the pastoral team here for the, uh, the privilege of coming to minister to you uh, this weekend, uh, first of all in the conference yesterday, but also uh, today uh, having the opportunity to take the pulpit of this church and bring God's word to you. Uh, I think if I'd known that uh, you had already read my commentary on the Gospel of John, I mightn't have chosen to preach from the Gospel of John. Uh, but... Um, having, having read the words on the printed page, you can now hear the accent <laughs> in which they ought to be read. Yeah, another thing that Ian and I have in common is that we're fellow Celts, um, even though uh, the Celts come in about four different flavors, nevertheless, they, the bond that binds the Celts together is deep and enduring, uh, and I'm grateful for it. I want to turn your attention to the, uh, the closing section of the prologue that was read to us, uh, where uh, we come to the climax of what John has to say in this opening section, this breathtaking opening section of this great gospel. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testifies concerning Him. He cries out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me, because he was before me. From the fullness of his grace we have all received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. I guess like many of you, um, remembering the time that you graduated high school and the rite of passage that that represents, you probably did something special in order to mark that transition uh, from life in school to life in college or life in the working world. And the same was true for me uh, and my friend. Uh, at the age of 17, we thought, we'll take a road trip. We'd never done that before, and we want to climb a mountain. 
and we picked the second highest mountain in England called Helvellyn in the Lake District uh, to make that ascent. Uh, we didn't know quite what to expect. Our intention was to climb it and then to spend the night camped at the top of the, ma- the mountain and come back down the next day. Uh, the climb was arduous. It was steep. Uh, it was at times treacherous. Uh, it took several hours to get to the top. But when we stood there on top of the mountain with a 360-degree panoramic view in all directions, we were lost for words to try and express the sensation of what we were seeing, the thrill of having reached the summit. And and in many ways, that, that gives us a glimpse of what's happening here in the opening section of John's Gospel. Uh, the, 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 first, the first 13 verses arguably represent uh, one of the steepest theological climbs that you will find anywhere in Holy Scripture. Uh, it takes us uh, from the, the depths of eternity into the highest moment in human history when, in the language of John, the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And it's as though John has taken us up this, this breathtaking climb uh, with all the challenges that it entails, whether you're a preacher or whether you're simply trying to study the Word for yourself or in a small group, uh, not knowing uh, how to cope with some of the turns of phrase, the nuances that he's used along the way. But here at the top of the mountain, you find yourself taking in this 360-degree view of what it all represents. And how does he sum it up? The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us, and we have seen His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And the fact that he reaches for that word glory is hugely appropriate for what he's seeking to convey in words with all their limitations, that which is beyond the ability to capture in words. But the word glory goes a long way to doing so because it's a word in the biblical languages that means weight and glory. The Hebrew word for glory speaks of something that has substance, that has, as we might say, gravitas, something that inherently uh, inspires our admiration, fills us with awe and wonder, realize, makes us realize that, that nothing in the entire scope of human vocabulary can express the fullness, the infinite fullness of what is being set before us in what God reveals to us. Not surprisingly, it's a word in the Old Testament that is most commonly used in relation to God Himself. As we're confronted with who He is, uh, the God who, even in Old Testament terms, uh, is seen to be the God uh, to whom there is more than meets the eye. Uh, Even though there isn't a fully developed doctrine of the Trinity in the Old Testament, nevertheless, there are glimpses that this one God that was confessed by Israel to be the Lord our God, the Lord is one, yet simultaneously that one God existed in some kind of plurality. Loads of little hints right from the very beginning in the book of Genesis that indicate there is more to God than we can possibly imagine, which becomes more fully revealed when we enter the New Testament and how he set before us there. But as well as that, it's not just in terms of who God is, it's what he is like. He is the one before whom the creatures of heaven cover their faces, look down at their feet, but cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. The whole earth is full of what? Full of his glory. But it speaks also of what God has done not merely in the glory of His works of creation, nor even in the glory of His ongoing works of providence as He upholds and sustains all things visible and invisible, but supremely God's glory is revealed in salvation. 
what this God against whom we as a race have rebelled in such foolishness and arrogance is the self-same God who, without being invited, comes looking for us in order to save us and then does all that is required to restore us back to Himself. We see the glory of God perhaps most strikingly revealed at that moment on top of Mount Sinai where Moses cries out to God, Lord, show me your glory and how God answers. God makes it clear to Moses that no man can see the glory of God in all its infinite fullness and live, survive the experience. Nevertheless, God says, I will hide you in this cleft in the rock and I will cover you with my hand. And then as I pass by revealing my glory, I will allow you to glimpse me from the rear that you might catch some small impression of the grandeur and the greatness of this God who commands your worship not just in word, but in the consecration of your lives in their totality for all eternity. It stands in such vivid contrast, not merely to the the empty claims of every other pretended deity that this world has worshipped through its history in its multitude of cultures, but also it it stands in vivid contrast to, to human beings in all their vain glory, in all their self-inflated impressions of their own importance and their own significance. As we go through John's gospel, we'll discover that it is significant that this word bound up is bound up with the very heart of salvation itself. It's the word that Jesus uses at that critical moment on the eve of his arrest, trial, crucifixion, and burial. John 17, an entire chapter recording what Jesus prayed that night before He died. How does He begin? Father, the time has come. Glorify Your Son, that the Son may glorify You. And at the end of that prayer, as He prays for the fulfillment of what He was about to do, the outworking of what He was about to accomplish on the cross, He prays prays for those who will believe in Him through the testimony and the gospel of the apostles. Father, I want them, all of them, to be with me where I am, that they may see my glory, the glory that I had with you from before the world began. And the fact that the word glory recurs at that critical point in Jesus' prayer makes it clear that if we are to make sense of the prologue to to John's gospel and its references to glory in relation to the Lord Jesus Christ, then we cannot understand the glory of God in eternity without understanding something of the cross in history. And that's all the more striking because in the eyes of the Roman world, and of the Jewish world of the day in which John was writing, nothing was more inglorious than that gibbet upon which Jesus Christ was immolated. You see, the glory of the cross, dear friends, lies in the fact that it demonstrates how low our God was prepared to go in order to lift us high. God Himself was prepared to plumb the very depths of hell itself in order to elevate us in Christ to the heights of heaven forever. That, my friends, is glory. There is nothing more glorious that you will ever hear in all the world. There is nothing that is more glorious for our race than what Jesus Christ did that day to display the glory of the triune God in such an extraordinary fashion. In that sense, these verses are not only thrilling because of what they reveal about God in Christ, but because of what they reveal about us ourselves. They disabuse us of the foolish notion that we in ourselves individually 
or as a race collectively can lay claim to any kind of glory, any kind of significance or meaning apart from this God and all that he has done to graciously save us. You see, our hearts, the hearts of every human being, longs for more. We know that within the squalor of this world in which we live and the grubby existence in which we, we work, that we seek to pursue, there must be something greater. John Stott uses the language of transcendence, something above and beyond of infinite importance, of enduring significance, something that reaches higher, that even though we cannot articulate what it is, what it looks like, there's something built into the fabric of our hearts as human beings that is absent from your pet dog, your pet cat, and every other creature. Because we carry in our hearts and in the depths of our souls what John Calvin described as a sensus deitatus, an awareness of the divine, of the God to whom we owe our existence, and indeed in whom, even if we do not realize, we live and move and have our very being. I want us to tease out something of what John says in these, four, these few verses in four ways to show how God's glory is revealed so fully and incomparably in the Lord Jesus Christ. In the first place, verse 14, through the incarnation, through that moment when the Son of God took human flesh and entered our world <clears throat> to dwell among us, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. The word that we meet as this mysterious being in the very first verse of this gospel seemed to be there before creation itself, existing in mystery and in majesty. At this specific moment in human history, the eternal word stepped into our world. The one who cannot be contained within the vastness of the cosmos entered the cosmos and stepped in to our humanity. The fact that John phrases it, the word became flesh, is loaded with significance. It brings us back to Adam being created by God in the Garden of Eden, Genesis 2 verse 7. It shows, tells us that God formed the man out of the dust of the earth, and then it's as though God in heaven presses His face into the face of this, this, lifeless, this, this lifeless form and breathes into His nostrils the breath of life, and, says Moses, at that moment, He became a living being. Prior to that moment, He was nothing but dust of the earth, inanimate. But the moment God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, he became a living being. The life of God was breathed into the soul of man. John is now telling us that the eternal Son became the ultimate living being in that breathtaking moment, in the darkness and the stillness of the virgin womb of Mary in Nazareth, when the Holy Spirit overshadowed her. And what was conceived in her womb became the ultimate human being prototypical human being, archetypal human being, the one in whom alone the fate of every human being will stand or fall, depending how you respond to him. The first Adam, who was infused with a different kind of life, than the rest of the animate world because God breathed into him 
in a way that he had not breathed into any other creature. Adam, our first father, exchanged that life from heaven for death through his disobedience and rebellion. But the one who came from heaven to establish life in that zygote, in Mary's womb, was the one who would lay down that life on the cross and embrace death in order that we in him might have our our status reversed and be brought back to what God intended us to be. And it was reversed because he exchanged his life for death upon that cross. Not simply to prove something about himself, but to do something for all those that God the Father had given to him. It's true in your culture here in America that there have been many occasions either in combat or in some kind of atrocity that has been committed that when someone in the line of duty stands in the way of a gunman who's about to slaughter many and says, I will take the bullets instead of them. I will lay down my life that they might live. They're fated as national heroes. But here is the Lord Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God. And He is displaying the greatest of all imaginable glory because He, the righteous one, in the language of Peter, lays down His life for the unrighteous with one express purpose, to bring us, who by nature are alienated from God, to bring us back to God. So this glory of Christ, seen first in His incarnation, is seen in its fullness in the crucifixion because it takes us to make the journey from John 1 verse 1 all the way through to the end of John 18. So that in chapter 19, when we're looking on on Jesus on the cross, we know exactly who He is. This is not the carpenter's son from Nazareth, but this is the incarnate Son of God from heaven, nailed to that tree, the one in whom alone, because of who He is, Son of God in human flesh, He has both the authority and the capacity to make the transaction that was necessary upon that cross to bring about salvation that is real. and to underwrite a gospel that is credible. John doesn't leave us to speculate as to what this means. He tells us up front the glory as of the only Son, full of grace and truth. And the weight of all of that is bound up with that other little detail. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. The great thing about John's gospel is that you cannot get enough of it. You cannot dig deeply enough. And, 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 and just a few months ago, I bought the latest commentary to come out on John's gospel by F.D. Brunner, a, a huge, hefty volume, but, but, but an incredibly helpful volume. But he, um, somewhat tongue-in-cheek, translates or paraphrases that statement by, say, the, by saying, the Word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. He moved into the neighborhood. How would you think if the Queen of England came to live in Bakersfield? Can you imagine what it is that the King of Heaven has moved into the neighborhood of our humanity here on earth? Not in a palace, but pitching his tent among our tents. He became one of us in order that He might be one with us, ultimately that He might act for us to do what we 
could never do in a million lifetimes. To deal with our sin and guilt, to clothe us in the righteousness of heaven itself, and to restore us to the fellowship of the God by whom and for whom we are made. In that sense, the, the glory of the incarnation should not be kept in a box until Christmas time. The glory of the incarnation is not, not something that you unwrap once a year when, when it gets close to the 25th of December. The glory of the incarnation should radiate and fill us with wonder every day of life because the glory of the incarnate Christ will be the wonder of heaven itself. And I can't help but wonder when we finally get there in that new heavens and the new earth, which are the home of righteousness, and we see Jesus in the flesh face to face, if every day we just don't stop and stare and think, you're the one that came from here down to where we lived in order to lift us from here up there to where you belong, to stare in wonderment at the Christ who will never abandon his humanity. The dust of earth is on the throne of heaven for us. Or as Derek Thomas said in his recent, recent book on heaven and earth, he said, Jesus has a zip code. There's a place where he is. And there'll be a day when we shall see him in the flesh. Secondly, God's glory, Christ's glory is revealed through the Baptist's testimony, verse 15. The, the weight of what John the Evangelist says about the glory of Christ is intensified by the testimony of John the Baptist. This was he of whom uh, he said, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Two things stand out about that statement that should make us stop and think. The first is the question of who is worthy of honor in this situation. In the ancient world, as well as in many cultures today, uh, honor and recognition is tied to a person's age. Sadly, that's not true in Britain today, and it's not true in America today, but there are still some cultures where to be old and have gray hairs makes you worthy of respect. It's a badge of honor. In the ancient world, to be elderly was to be honored and to be acknowledged in a way if it was not true when you were younger. An older person is worthy of greater respect than the younger, and yet here is John the Baptist declaring of Christ, he who came after me ranks before me. He spells it out more fully later. He says, I'm not worthy to untie the sandals, the thongs and the sandals of his feet. And for the Baptist to make such a declaration publicly would have sent a stir through the crowds who were listening to him that day because it was a breach of cultural protocol. Don't say that, John, because it's not true. You're worthy of more honor than he is. And yet again and again, John the Baptist acknowledges Jesus' preeminence over him. He gave glory to the one who was regarded by by all around him as being inferior to him. It's hard for us to grasp that because of our obsession with egalitarianism. Everybody's equal. We're obsessed with that. And yes, there's a place for recognizing equality within our race and, and, and between its different sectors. But egalitarianism misunderstands the mystery of our humanity and the way that God has made us. And it shouldn't prevent us from seeing the significance of what God is revealing here. But it's the second detail that should stop us in our tracks as being even more striking. He says, because he was before me. John, John the Baptist takes his recognition of Christ's glory from cultural protocols to the very nature of his existence. On a pure biological level, John the Baptist, who was a near relative of Jesus, was conceived before Jesus, Luke tells us that in Luke chapter 1. So in that sense, it wasn't true biologically that Jesus was, that he existed before John the Baptist. But, but even more than that, the fact that John the Evangelist says that John's testimony was that he was before him as opposed to was conceived before him 
That turn of phrase in itself says there's more going on here than meets the eye. Matthew Henry, well known for his commentary, flags up this as being a clear statement about the two natures of Christ. As to his human nature, he came after John the Baptist. But as to his divine nature, he was before him and always would be. So even before Christ's public ministry had officially begun, there was a very public statement being made about the uniqueness of who he was. Here was one who was like no other. The glory that's revealed through the incarnation. Thirdly, the, 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 the way in which his glory is revealed through what he gives to every Christian, and that applies to you and to me if you're a Christian here in this building this morning. You see, this next verse, verse 16, the evangelist takes the significance of what he is stating, um, not just to his own present, but to the present of everyone who reads his gospel. So if you have read John's gospel, if you are reading John's gospel for the first time, then what he is saying here from, from uh, what took place all those years ago has been brought right into our immediate present. Because he says there in verse 16, uh, from the fullness of His grace, we have all received grace upon grace. And the focus of the verse is this, that it is His fullness, Christ's fullness, because of who He is uniquely, that He possesses resources that cannot be equaled and have had nothing that compared to them. The fact that John was able to use the word we instead indicates that this was not just his own testimony as an apostle, but it is verified by everyone who believes the testimony of the apostles. That they discover for themselves that the truth of the gospel, taste and see that the Lord is good, is true truth. It's not fake religious news. It is the ultimate truth that will determine your destiny in heaven if you believe, but simply confirm your destiny in hell if you refuse to believe. And even in light of the infinite fullness of the eternal Word made flesh in Jesus Christ, the fullness of the cosmos itself is nothing in comparison. You know, we flatter ourselves in this technological age that we have got telescopes that can peer into the universe and see what apparently is happening billions of light years away. And God sits in heaven and He smiles. And He says, that's nothing. That is nothing at all. That what you see through that bundle of metal in your best bits of technological kit is nothing in comparison to what is enfleshed in Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Bound up in His humanity. It beggars belief and it commands our respect because it enshrines the glory of God in a way that nothing else could. Every parent, the few parents here this morning, every parent wants the best for their children. They want them to have the fullest life that they can give them. And, and again, in this world in which we live, how do you do that? You buy them the latest technology. You give them the greatest opportunities. You invest vast amounts of money into giving your kids what you think is the fullest life they can have. Is it not strange that our generation in the Western world and our kids and grandkids growing up in the Western world are more empty than any generation that has come before them? That the very gifts we're putting into their hands are only fueling their self-destruction in a multitude of ways. 
But there's more to fullness than the best you can buy. There is more to fullness than the most sophisticated thing you can give. And that's why if you go to some of the places where poverty is rampant in this world, and you visit the churches of those countries, you will find the happiest Christians on the planet. Because they realize more than any that fullness does not consist in what you have, what you can accumulate, what you can attain, what station you can rise to. Because the fullness that they enjoy is the fullness of heaven itself that is theirs in union and communion with the Lord Jesus Christ. What Paul describes as this empty way of life in Galatians, from which we need to be redeemed, is writ large over your culture and my culture in what we so arrogantly assume to be the most sophisticated societies in the world. The glory of the fullness of Christ and what we have in Christ lies in the fact it doesn't depend on how well off we are. It doesn't depend on how well we are physically or mentally. And it doesn't discriminate between people from every conceivable background getting through the doors of this church because the church has no bars on who may be received into the fellowship of the family of God and share in the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ as we're joined to Him. The fact that John says that in Him we have received grace upon grace has intrigued many readers of John's gospel. But but what it seems to be suggesting to us that here was John writing at the interface between the Old Testament epoch and the New Testament epoch. And he was saying, yes, there was grace in the Old Testament, but grace has gone to a new level in the New Testament in the Lord Jesus Christ. And more of that of a moment. Which brings us to the last thing. That the glory of which John speaks is glory that is revealed through who He, Jesus, is and what He, Jesus, alone could do. Verses 17 and 18. John steers us to the conclusion of this climax. He brings us to the very pinnacle itself of the prologue by saying that the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. It's tempting to read those words in isolation and and reach the wrong conclusion. Many Christians, sadly, and many commentators, sadly, say, well, here's here's John, and he's, he's, he's pitting grace over against law. Law is one thing, but grace is the antithesis of law. But that would be to misunderstand what John is saying. He's not setting up a contrast. He is making a comparison. He is saying, you know, the Old Testament, the law and the prophets, is full of grace. The very fact that there is such a thing as the Old Testament, the very fact that we have Genesis 1 verse 1 is a mark of grace in itself. Why should God speak to us in the first place? But the fact that God chose to reveal Himself in written form as Moses penned in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, is a mark of grace. As Francis Schaeffer said, the God who is there and the God who is not silent. Because if God was silent, we wouldn't be here today. So what John is saying, there was grace in the Old Testament, but there is grace on steroids in the New Testament. You think you see grace by the end of Malachi chapter 4, you've only begun to glimpse it. You've got to get into Matthew chapter 1 to begin to realize how great the grace really is that we have from God in heaven. You know, you know, the gospel in the Old Testament is a bit like a dot-to-dot puzzle. Do you have dot-to-dot puzzles over here, boys and girls? Do you have dot-to-dot puzzles? 
you get these, these books with lots of dots on the page and you're supposed to be able to join the dots and you end up with a picture. Well, it's a bit like finding grace in the Old Testament. You know it's there, but sometimes it's very hard to see. Sometimes it's very hard to see grace in the book of Judges, but it's there. If I give you a clue, there's a spoiler here. There's a very simple way to join the dots that bring out the grace all the way through the Old Testament, and it's spelled in five letters, J-E-S-U-S. Christ is revealed, and the grace of God in Christ is revealed all the way through the Old Testament as you learn to recognize how Christ is present in every syllable of the Old Testament, from the first verse of Genesis right through to the last verse of Malachi. And when you begin to realize and begin to discern Christ in all of Scripture and Christ in all of the Old Testament, then you discover that, yes, there is grace oozing from its pages. But the very fact that the Old Testament is the Old Testament indicates that there was more to come. The Jews to whom the Old Testament was given knew that the story was unfinished. This was the great unfinished of the God of the universe, unfinished symphony of the God of the universe. The climax was to come. The fulfillment was to be revealed. So, so, so for 400 years when God was silent between the end of Malachi and the beginning of Matthew, the Israelites were holding their breath. What's the end of the story? Where's the punchline of what God has been speaking about? Where's the climax? And when Jesus Christ quietly explodes into the life of planet Earth in the miracle of conception that took place in the womb of the Virgin Mary, the orchestra swells and it reaches the grand crescendo, not on Easter Sunday morning, but in the darkness of Good Friday on the hill of Calvary. Father, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Because in that moment, when the incarnate Son died as the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world, in that moment, everything changed. In that moment, Christ was able to cry, Father, it is done, it is accomplished nothing left to do except one thing believe in the Lord Jesus Christ receive the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved let's pray Lord God of heaven Father, Son, Holy Spirit Lord Jesus, who took our flesh and entered our world to become our brother and our friend. We are lost for words to respond to your glory. But we magnify your holy name and pray that you will be enthroned upon the praises of your people, both now and forevermore. For Jesus' sake, amen.